were in Isaiah 38 last week, and I got into this section about the bitterness of Hezekiah in verse 9 of chapter 38, and how he was pining away and upset and frustrated and bitter that his life was being taken away and so on. And I don't know what all the reasons for his bitterness might have been, but he had become bitter of heart. I did mention the thing about Herbert Armstrong and maybe how he, in some respects, was a type of Hezekiah. Uh, I think I have it further in my notes. Someone brought up, well, he only lived another seven years after his heart attack. But are we not a part of the work of Hezekiah? And from the heart attack in 1984 until the church, I think you could say, basically officially died in 94, 95, right in that area, it was approximately 15 years when it began to truly fall apart and splinter uh, in mass. A few had left earlier, but the church basically came apart roughly 15 years after Herbert Armstrong's death. And we were a part of that work. So Hezekiah and who he was as an individual man may not be so important in this end-time type as we who were a part of what went on in Worldwide and particularly what went on from his heart attack on. He lived, the man, Herbert Armstrong, yet at the same time he was in very, very weakened condition. And he, be, he ceased to travel around the world and try to impress dignitaries with his give-get message. And I think perhaps began to be humbled somewhat, as Hezekiah was, and repented of his pride and vanity and ego. And yet at the same time, he began to focus on God's people. You may remember that his main focus in sermons came down to, let's get the church straightened up. We're off the track. We must get back on the track. And yet he did not have the strength, the energy, the power to go around, to visit the congregations, to effectively work with the ministry, to get the church back on the track. He was alive, but he was weak. And the works of Hezekiah before his sickness were much greater than after his sickness. So I think that's something for us to perhaps take upon ourselves and realize that we need to move forward. And that's why I picked out this attitude that God uses quite a few verses here about, let's see, from about nine through 20, spends quite a little time discussing the bitterness of attitude that Hezekiah had. And I think it is very, very important for us to consider that today. I mentioned last week at the beginning, Second Chronicles 30 through 32, and how Hezekiah did straighten out the Passover service and keep it in a way that it had not been kept in many, many years in Israel, and then they went on to 
work at straightening out government as it should be in Israel at that time, got tithing straightened out, and by the way, it was first tithe there talked about in Second Chronicles 32, not second tithe as I think someone commented. All you have to do is read through there carefully and see that it was for the priests. It wasn't for the feast at all. And it was to encourage the priesthood in particular. So they worked on the Passover, on government, on tithing, and then on putting up stores, whether that be physical or spiritual stores, of food and sustenance to keep them alive. And then the Assyrian came. Now, recognizing that we have problems in these areas is not enough. It said those things had to be established. And we must establish our lives according to Scripture. Once that is done, then things will improve. We must establish truth and worship in spirit and in truth. You cannot righteously worship God unless you have both the attitude and the truth to follow. And that is where Hezekiah was having a problem, and frankly, that's where we as a church had a problem. We had the essentials of truth, or at least most of the truth, about most things. There are things we are discovering that we did not have right, yet at the same time, it was not truth or doctrine that got Laodicea into problems, was it? Read Revelation 3 carefully. It was attitude that God did not like. We had the basic truths, but we were lackadaisical and self-righteous, self-deceived in attitude. And there is still a great deal of that throughout the church. Now you may feel at times that I hammer and hammer and hammer on you. I'm hammering on me too. But at the same time, we must. You know more and understand more about what is going on in the church, what is going on with God's people, the 99 point whatever percent of the rest of the people in the church. Now it may feel like it has to be hammered and hammered or you feel like it is hammered and hammered, but what does it take for us to get beyond self-deception, to get beyond self-righteousness, and the attitudes of spiritual pride to where we become meek and humble and teachable. Not self-justifying, not self-deceiving. What does it take for us to be humble? I'll tell you what it's going to take for most of the world and for most of the church. It is going to take the destruction of more than 90% of the inhabitants of this earth, well over 90%, are going to have to die and not just fall over in an instant from a heart attack. 
well over 90% of the inhabitants of this earth today are going to die of starvation, horrible disease, and the sword. They're going to waste away, they're going to rot away, and be blown away. That's what it's going to take. And most of the church is going to go through that. It is not through lack of love or concern that I keep hammering on us. I don't want us to go through what the majority of this earth are going to go through. I want us to escape it, to be accounted worthy to escape it. Now, none of us are worthy to escape it. Now, that should prick our little balloon of spiritual pride, ego, and self-righteousness. None of us, not one, is righteous. No, not one. It can only be the righteousness of God in us that God will respond to. And we must become meek, humble, and teachable, not resistant and proud, or we will not be a part of the kingdom of God in the long run, nor will we be protected from what is to come unless we have the attitude of a little child. Now, I stated last week, and I'll review briefly, our problem is not government because you cannot deny that God throughout the Bible used men to govern men. That is one of the easiest, clearest things to see. The problem is our attitude toward what has happened to us. One cannot deny tithing. It is something God instituted, something Abraham did, something Moses did, something that has been done throughout history. So where is the problem? The problem is that we saw misuse and abuse and became frustrated and bitter over it and or we simply lack the faith to do it. But one of the overall attitudes in the church today, as evidenced by our war stories, our complaints, our gripes, our frustrations, is a bitter attitude toward what went on in the Worldwide Church of God. Now God was angry at Worldwide also. God scattered Worldwide because of that anger. So. To be angry or frustrated by what we experienced was not wrong per se. Let's be clear and understand this. If it angered God, why should it not have angered us as well? Doesn't that make sense? Now what is God going to do about it? Now he blew it apart 
His anger is being dissipated. And he says if we will turn to him with our whole heart, his anger against us will go away and he will turn his face and bless us. So God is doing what? God is going to change his attitude toward us when we change. The ball is in our court. This is something that is vital for us to understand, brethren, each and every one of us in our own hearts, to understand that we must take individual personal responsibility for what has happened to us and to our brethren. You cannot change anyone but you. I cannot change anyone but me. God has put me in a position to help influence, strengthen you, direct you, and guide you toward those changes, but I can't make them for you. I can only point you in the direction, or as the old saying goes, take you to the water, I can't make you drink. It is my job to cry aloud and spare not. Sometimes it's mixed. I read Ezekiel 34 where God says that Christ will come and eventually hold the lambs in his arms. And he says those lambs are men at the end of the chapter. And he will take loving care of them. So that is what we need to do. And yet at the same time we need to understand that Christ has not yet taken all the lambs into his arm and is gently rocking and loving and making sweet noises toward them. His anger is not yet vented. We have not seen three shepherds cut off in one month, nor three large organizations be destroyed in one month, as Zechariah 11 says. The anger of God has not dissipated toward the church. Now, I hope that we are headed in the direction that is causing his anger to turn from us. Because it is only going to be a very, very small people to begin with that his anger turns from. And he begins to shine his face upon and bless. And I believe that we are among that number who have that opportunity to be the first. Now there may be others here and there whom he is working with, but we have the understanding of what has happened. The carrot is right in front of us. Now are we going to think about what happened in the past, or will we follow the carrot? God has said if we'll turn to him with our whole heart, if we'll follow the carrot, he will turn to us not away from us as he has been. That is very encouraging, especially when we're the ones that I believe, in that sense, are the closest to the carrot. Because we understand what has happened, and most don't. Now, it is not the subject I discussed 
government and tithing that are the problem per se. It is our attitude about them. If you're going to overcome something, you have to know what the real problem is and face it. As in all things in our lives, we often run from and hide from what the real problem is, deceiving ourselves into thinking, here's the problem over here because we don't want to face the reality of the true problem. And people are very, very good at that. Very good, no matter what the subject. Certainly not limited to these two or three that Hezekiah faced in Second Chronicles 30 through 32. People become bitter over a lot of different things. Bitter toward relatives, bitter toward parents, bitter toward jobs, bitter toward former uh, partners in business, you name it. There are so many things we can be bitter about. Ex-mates, stepchildren, I mean, you can just go on and on the things that people become disenchanted, frustrated, and bitter over. And it is affecting whom? It's affecting them. Let's go to Romans 3. Romans 3. Here Paul is discussing Judaism, to whom was given the Old Testament, and how they had a great advantage by having that Old Testament. They were not given the New Testament. They did not accept Christ. They were certainly not given a secret calendar by any means, because there was no such thing in Moses' day. You had a 360-day year and 30-day months, 12 times a year, and that was it. But there were other problems with Judaism. Verse 12, they are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their mouth, lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Now that characterized the Jews under Judaism in Christ and Paul's day. But do we not see that same attitude a great deal in the church today? Look at many of the articles in the journal. There are people who write in there who are just absolutely bitter. Not everyone, by any means. But there are frequent articles in that magazine in which people just... Their mouth is like an open grave. You look in, down their throat, and all you see is rot. Tongues full of poison, who are just angry to the core. Angry to the core. Because of what has transpired. Whatever their particular acts that they are grinding might be, there's bitterness there. Anger, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, verse 14. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their ways. Now when people write those bitter things, 
I cannot help but think there is an angry person whose whole life is a frustration because they are so focused in on being angry. And bitterness and anger is not a happy emotion, is it? Those are miserable people. And they're trying to get everyone to share the bitterness that they themselves feel. Let's go to Acts 8. Here was a man that, on the surface, you might think, should have been all right. In this case, Philip went down in verse 5, Acts 8, to the city of Samaria and preached Christ. Many people obeyed him. They saw miracles being done and so on. And there was great joy in that city, verse 8. But there was a certain man called Simon, who, which before time in the same city, used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one. He thought he was very important. Now, Dr. Ernest Martin went into a paper on this, studied it all out, and apparently this is the Simon Magus who started the Catholic Church. But he had connection with the true church before he began to do that. Verse 10, to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. So apparently he had a lot of lying signs and wonders and various things he did that caught people's attention. And to him they had, they had regard, because that of long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. Somewhat of a magician. And Satan is not very far from sorcery and magicians and sleight of hand. God wants us to be honest and true, yes, yes, and no, no, and not to deceive, however innocently in some cases it might seem. Those magicians in Las Vegas, if they are not out and out demon-influenced, are very, very close to it. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Then Simon himself believed also. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. You know, this is pretty neat. Now, did he repent from the heart, or did he simply believe because he saw signs and miracles? You see, signs and miracles are not for those who believe, but for those who believe not. We believe because of the Word of God. We believe because we look at the, the creation around us and know there had to be a God. And we have faith and trust that he has our best interests in mind. Signs and miracles will come again. But those are for the world, essentially, not for us. Now, they may be used to some degree to show where God is working in the end time for people who do believe already, but they're mainly there for those who do not. Now, when the apostles, verse 14, which were at Jerusalem, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who when they were come down, prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. 
For as yet he was fallen, or it was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now that tells us something as a sidebar about baptism and the laying on of hands. Philip was not an ordained minister, he was a deacon. And he did not have the authority to lay hands on so that God would give his Holy Spirit to those who had been baptized. He could baptize, it's a physical thing, and sometimes we allow the assistance uh, to actually put people under the water, but the ordained ministry were the ones who laid hands on and that is the example that is shown here. <coughs> they didn't have hands laid on them and did not receive the Holy Spirit until those who were duly authorized came there. It has been somewhat popular in the church here and there for laymen to say, well, I can baptize and I can lay hands on. God does not honor that. The example right here is in Acts 8. And when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered the money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands he may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, or the Phillips translation says, To hell with you and your money. And that's apparently the literal Greek there. And Simon the Magus did go down into the grave, that is hell, or Gehenna fire, not Gehenna fire, but into the grave. And he is a candidate for Gehenna fire as well, unless he repents. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Now, he believed doctrine, right? He believed what Philip was preaching, and yet his attitude was not right. Peter and John perceived what his attitude was, that he was really there for the money, the power, he was not there to serve God with his whole heart. It's not what he was there for. So he told him, Repent therefore of this your wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I perceive that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Then answered Simon and said, Pray you to the Lord for me that none of these things which you have spoken come upon me. The man realized that they were right, that his motives were not right, that his heart was not right, and that even though he believed a certain amount of the truth, there was a bitterness in him, a jealousy in him toward the apostles whom Christ had appointed. He wanted the same power they had and was jealous over it and was bitter about it. Now, I have seen many, many people over the decades in the church of God who were jealous because someone else led songs, gave a prayer, uh, gave a sermonette, gave a sermon, was ordained, was made a deacon, was made an elder, or whatever, and they weren't. People have been so bitter they've left the church over that. This was not something that is confined only to this sign. It's been fairly common in the church of God. Bitter jealousies have arisen in many, many congregations. You've experienced it. You've seen it. You've watched it. You may have even partaken of it. Now, what did Peter tell this man to do? Change your attitude. 
you are in the gall of bitterness. Have you ever tasted gall? It'll make you shudder all over. Shudder just thinking about it, like worse than sour lemon. If you kill an animal, a chicken or whatever, and you get a little bit of that gallbladder that's next to the liver, in with your liver, you won't want to eat it. It is bitter. That's why he said the, the gall of bitterness. If we are angry, if we are bitter, over whatever it is, whether it's something in the church, out of the church, someone else in our family, whoever it might be, or whatever it might be, there is no room for anger and bitterness in the Christian heart and mind. No room, as we shall see, and I will prove, whatsoever. It must be repented of. If it is not repented of, we will die with it. It's just that simple. Let's go to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. And see what Paul had to say here. Ephesians 4. And I want down about verse 24. Ephesians 4, 24. And that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Now he said before this, we have to put off our old way of thinking, the old man. Now that's what we went through in conversion, didn't it? Isn't it? When we came to a knowledge of the truth of God, whether we were Methodist, Baptist, Catholic, so-called atheist, whatever we were, we realized our old way of thinking was wrong and we had to change it. I'm telling you there has to be a new conversion today. We all went the way of Laodicea. We were self-deceived and self-righteous. Is that not what characterizes all the Protestant churches? Self-deception and self-righteousness thinking they are okay when they're not. Didn't we think we were okay and we weren't? Doesn't most of the church today consider itself Philadelphian and that it's okay? I recently had a conversation with someone in PCG that I happened to run across. Uh, I won't say where, but I happened to run across them inadvertently. They were there for another reason, as was I. But they happened to be there, and we had opportunity to talk. I expressed a few feelings about some of the things that we are learning from Scripture, and then that individual expressed back to me that only those in PCG are righteous and that there is nothing wrong with them. They're just fine, thank you and used those words. There is a whole huge, I say huge by our numbers, not by Catholic or Methodist numbers, huge organization there that from the top to the bottom believes there's nothing wrong with them. 
and there are other organizations the same way. I don't mean to be knocking anyone in particular, it's just someone I happen to run across who was utterly deceived, utterly deceived about leadership there, utterly deceived about self, and utterly deceived about the whole organization. <coughs> there has to be a conversion. There has to be a change from that attitude. God will see to it in due time that that attitude goes away. We have opportunity now to be sure that it goes away. Put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. We're not seeking what we had in worldwide, brethren. We're seeking righteousness, the righteousness of God, and true holiness. Now, he says, wherefore, if we're going to seek righteousness and true holiness, what should we do? That's what wherefore means. Wherefore, putting away lying, we can lie to ourselves and deceive ourselves, as whole organizations do, either in terms of our spiritual condition or in terms of our own lives. There are people on this earth who have lied all their lives to the point they don't know the difference between truth and lies anymore. They really don't. I've met people like that. They don't even know the difference. Putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. Stop and think. Is what I'm saying to cover my behind? Is what I'm saying true reality, or is it a lie? Is it a way of making myself look better and feel better about myself and trying to keep others from seeing flaws within me? Is this the real truth, let your yes be yes and your no be no, or it's something that I have carefully cultured and devised in my own mind to present to others? Am I deceiving myself? For we are members one of another. Don't lie to yourself. Don't lie to your brothers. Be you angry and sin not. Now didn't I say earlier, God has been angry with us, still is. And it's okay for us to have been angry, perhaps toward others and toward what has been done to us. But it says, be you angry and sin not. It is not always wrong to be angry. There is righteous anger. God has righteous anger. So, we can be angry about what people do to us, but don't sin. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. I ask you, how long have we, as members of God's church, allowed our anger to simmer and to boil? Days? Weeks? Months? Years? Approaching now decades, people have allowed themselves to remain angry and bitter about what has transpired in the past. 
God tells us we are not to let the sun go down on our wrath. We are supposed to get over whatever has been done to us by sundown. I challenge you, who may still be bitter toward the ministry in the past, toward me in the, in the present, I challenge you to get over it by sundown tonight. Can you do that? If you're over it, that means you won't be bringing up what so-and-so did to you 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. That's God's instruction. Get over it. Stop it. I faced somebody with this, I don't know how long it's been ago now, less than a year ago, who admits they're very bitter towards someone else. And I said, you have to repent of that attitude. I can't. It is that deeply embedded in that individual's psyche, their feelings, their emotions. And it's not a matter really of can't, is it? It's a matter of won't. You cannot overcome something as long as you don't want to. You can only overcome it when you want to. I have prayed in my life at times, Father, help me want to overcome something because I didn't want to. It had become a close friend, a loving buddy, an attitude, be it self-pity or anger towards someone else or whatever, habits, whatever they might be that we have, that we have come to adore, to like. Some things you gave up easily when you came into God's church. Other things came much harder. And some we've clung to to this day and have not yet overcome. He tells us what to do with our anger and our bitterness. Simply divest ourselves of it. Get rid of it. Change the attitude. I know people who have written books trying to reveal all of Herbert Armstrong's sins. People who are just so full of hate and bitterness that it overrides everything in their lives. I know one man who wrote such a book who died and apparently still had the bitterness in his heart and mind. Bitter and angry until the day he died. Why do that to ourselves? Why not move on? Neither give place to the devil. When we allow ourselves to be angry, frustrated, and bitter, we are giving the devil a wonderful chance or a place in our emotions and feelings. Giving him a place in our minds, in our hearts, when we are angry and bitter, frustrated by what people have done or by what we've been taught or whatever. 
He tells us what to do, verse 28. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good. Some people just sit around and rot. That's one way you get over something, is get busy, doing something, accomplishing something, moving forward, not just sitting and hashing over sour grapes. That doesn't do it. We have our little pity parties, we have our little attitudes that we like to go into a dark corner or on our bed and think all the hateful things that come through our mind, and we cozy up to those. But we're giving Satan a place in our mind and our emotions. Working with his hands that thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needs. In other words, God says don't sit around and be in need. Get busy and produce something to give someone else who is in need. That's what we need to be doing. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers. If we have bitter, argumentative, frustrated, jealous feelings, he says, don't let that come out your mouth. Then your mouth is an open sepulcher spewing the gases of dead bodies out for people to breathe, using Paul's analogy in chapter 3 of Romans. And that's what Christ used to describe Judaism of his day. Open sepulchers. All the nice smells come wafting out of an open sepulcher. Don't let your mouth be like that. But that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you were sealed unto the day of redemption. God is grieved. His Spirit is grieved. And it is quenched by corrupt, wrong, bitter, frustrated communications. Just is. There is absolutely no room for that in our hearts our minds or our tongues. All right, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you along with all malice. And be you kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. There he tells us, any of those attitudes, anger, clamor, bitterness, malice, any evil speaking, be put away and replaced by kind, tender-hearted love one for another. There simply is no room in Christianity for what we have allowed ourselves to indulge in over the past 15 years, 19, getting close to 20 years. There's no place for it. Let's go to Hebrews 12. Now, I'm not just talking here to hear my head rattle. 
I'm telling you that if we have any of those attitudes left, they have to go away. We're hurting ourselves, we're hurting the rest of the body, and we're certainly hurting our chances to be a part of the kingdom of God. In Hebrews 12, we know this chapter is one where it tells us that we do have Jesus Christ, who despised the shame and endured everything he went through, and did not allow himself to get bitter, angry, or whatever, but with his dying breath said, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And much of what was done in the ministry to the church of God over the last 40 years was done by men who were self-deceived in their own importance, full of spiritual pride, who had been shown an example by some in headquarters, a wrong example of how to handle people and what to do. And there were terrible abuses and misuses. And I can understand how people became bitter and angry, but there is no way or no space to understand why they stay that way in the face of these scriptures. Jesus Christ endured far more than any of us have ever even begun to endure and said, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing. That is the example that we are to follow. Verse 4, we have not yet resisted the blood striving against sin. And then he goes on to show that God chastens every son whom he loves. Now, we were misused and abused, and at the same time, we became spiritually proud and self-deceived ourselves. That is what the ministry put off to us, and we accepted it and inculcated it into our minds and attitudes. So we became what we despised them for being. So what did God do? He got out the paddle and began to chasten us. And that's what we're under right now, today. And he shows that men do it for their pleasure, but he for our profit, in the verse 10, that we might be partakers of his holiness. The whole object of what God is doing to the church right now is that we might be partakers of his holiness. It's to get us to straighten up. If there's self-deception, self-righteousness, spiritual pride, if there's anger, bitterness, malice, evil speaking, one of another, it's to bring us to the point we get over it. That's the whole purpose of what he's doing to us right now. Now, are we being channeled in that direction or are we just going to sit on it until God absolutely forces it out of us? Now, I don't want you, I don't want me to go through what it's going to take to do that. Now, is it fun? No. Verse 11. Now, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, 
but grievous. Now, isn't the whole church pretty well grieved by the condition we find ourselves in today? We certainly are. You hear it everywhere you go. Even this person I talked to who said, we're fine, we're okay, we're the only ones who are righteous, was grieving that all the others are so Laodicean and not part of that group. So even in this person's, I'm using my fingers for quotes, righteousness, there's still a lot of grief there over what God is doing to everyone else but me. It's sad. I could see there was no point in pursuing very much with that individual. It doesn't seem to be joyous but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness to them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Don't let it heal in a crooked direction. Straighten it out. Make straight paths and let it heal properly. Proper healing of our spiritual condition does not include bitterness and anger and wrath. There's no room for it. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which, now what did I say a moment ago? Without which no man shall see the Lord. That's pretty plain speaking. He's saying if we still have clamor, bitterness, and anger, we simply won't see God. Because that's not God. Looking diligently, looking very carefully at our insides, our innermost heart and being, brethren, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and therefore many be defiled. That is exactly what is happening in the church today. Many are being defiled by bitternesses over the past, whatever the source. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person, as Esau, which for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. It's so easy to sin, be it fornication, fornication with this world, whether it be physical fornication or spiritual. Those things are easy to do. It's easy to fall into sin. Look at Esau, how so easily he fell into sin. He was really hungry been out hunting all day. And his brother had this wonderful tasting soup there. And he didn't care about his birthright at that point. He just wanted that soup. Wanted that satisfaction. Now, have we been bitter toward worldwide, toward Herbert Armstrong in some cases? It's always strange to me how some absolutely idolize him and others hate him. None can understand he was a man, it seems, some can, but so many can't see that he was a man God used in spite of his problems to do a work. God wasn't entirely pleased with that work, and when the heathen came in, he just said that's the last straw and blew it all apart. But he so easily said, i got to have that suit. 
Well, give me your birthright. Well, okay, who cares? Give me some soup. That's how easy it is. It can slip away just like that because of an attitude. For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. He was so bitter in heart and soul that even though he wanted to change his attitude, he wept tears. But he was so frustrated by what he had lost that he simply could not overcome it. I have known people in this era of God's church who were that bitter. Now maybe that's not you, maybe that's not me. And you would say, well, you can't let yourself get that angry and that bitter. Well, how angry and how bitter can you allow yourself to be? How much is okay? How much concession can you make for yourself? How much will God make for you? He, he says you're giving a place to the devil when you have anger, frustration, and bitterness in your heart. doesn't say to what degree. How big a place do you want to make Satan? I guess that's the way to approach it. Do you want him to have a small place or a big place? How about no place? That's got to be our attitude. For you are not come to the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure that which was commanded, and if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. He says, what you are coming to is far more important than Sinai. Now he's writing this to the Jews, but it's to be read by spiritual Jews today. What we have today, right here, in this hall is so much more important than God on the Mount Sinai covered with clouds and thunder and lightning that there is no comparison. Do you look upon us sitting right here today as more important than Sinai? How much fear does that instill within you to consider that? How complacent are we? How much do we dance when Moses is gone? How much do we allow in our lives? How much do we allow in our minds? How much bitterness do we fight in the dark? How much place to Satan do we give? He's saying, we're not come to Mount Sinai. We're come to something else. So terrible was the sight at Sinai that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. We're not come there. We're coming, verse 22, to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, 
and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. That is a mouthful. That's a bigger deal by far than Sinai that we are a part of. Let's not let any attitude carry us away as it did Esau. That's the whole point here. Esau's bitterness is alive and well in the church today. A little different form, but the same attitude. And he wept bitterly with tears and couldn't get his attitude changed. And now we see a whole Muslim world that has the same attitude. Those who were half-brothers to Israel. Edomites, Ammonites, Moabites, Ishmaelites, Edomites, whatever they were. Basically the Arab tribes today. Who hate us with a passion that has been kindled century after century, millennium after millennium to this very day. And we have millions of people right here in this country who want to see every one of us destroyed. We are the great Satan in their minds. But they're not too far off. Do we realize that? In God's mind, we are the great poor. That is consorted with all nations of the world and forgotten God. We've been faithful to everyone but God. I joke about my little puppy when he goes to absolute strangers and jumps upon them to get loved. I tell them that's my faithful dog, faithful to everyone. Now he's innocent, <laughs> he's just a dog. But we as a nation and as a people are not innocent. And we have consorted with everyone in the world and made alliances with everyone and gone a-whoring away from God. And we have exported more violence and more immorality than any other nation on the face of the earth and still do to this day, and it's getting worse day by day by day. When they said, we're the great Satan... We might get angry and frustrated about that, but they're pretty close to the truth, brethren. Israel as a whole has gone after Satan. And most of the church has too, realize it or not. The problem is not so much doctrinal, it's an attitude. Let's see, let's go to, yeah, I'll skip over that. I'm, I'm going to run out of time here, and I don't want to continue this another, another week. <clears throat> let's go to Lamentations, Book of Lamentations, prophecy for the end. <clears throat> Between Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the little book, the Lamentations of Jeremiah. 
Beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. How does the city sit solitary that was full of people? How has she become as a widow? She that was great among the peoples and princesses among the, and princess among the provinces, how has she become tributary? She weeps sore in the night. The whole church has been obliterated, destroyed. Judah has gone into captivity because of affliction. Spiritual Judah certainly has. She dwells among the heathen. We understand from certain scriptures we need to come out from the heathen and not be among them and not be a part of them. Verse 4, the ways of Zion do mourn because none come to the solemn feasts. All her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh, her virgins are afflicted, and she is in bitterness. It's talking about the church today. Written to the church today. It's an end-time prophecy. There's a great deal, and I could spend two sermons real easily in the book of Lamentations. But I want you to see that this attitude that pervades the church today is one that we simply cannot tolerate in ourselves and in our lives, hearts, minds, bodies, and souls. We must turn to God with all our heart. There is no room in our heart for any kind of bitterness or anger. It simply has to go away. <clears throat> I've got a lot of scriptures and not much time. Let's see. Let's go to Amos 8. Amos 8. Verse 11. Or no, beginning in verse 8. Amos 8, verse 8. Shall not the land tremble for this, all the sins that he's talked about here, and every one mourn that dwells therein, and it shall rise up holy as a flood, shall be cast out and drowned as by the flood of Egypt. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Eternal, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in the clear day. Speaking here of the end time. And I will turn your feasts into mourning, and all your songs into lamentation. We just went, came from the book of Lamentations. And I will bring up sackcloth upon all loins, and baldness upon every head, and I will make it as the morning of an only son, and the end thereof as a bitter day. God is going to continue what he is doing until it's like we're weeping over our only son who has died. A bitter day. The church, brethren, is going to go into deeper and deeper bitterness. As it continues to come apart, and as eventually three big trees and three shepherds are cut off in one month, the bitterness is not going to get better, it is going to deepen. If you think people have been bitter heretofore, what is coming is going to make them even more bitter. Will we allow ourselves to go that way? Or will we repent, hopefully before sundown tonight, and change some attitudes? Will we go the way the rest of the church is going to go? Because God is going to make the famine worse in verse 11, so that the word of God cannot be found. That's where things are headed. They'll wander from sea to sea and from the north to the south, seeking the word of the Lord and shall not find it. In that day shall the fair virgins and the young men faint for thirst. 
dying spiritually, drying up spiritually. It's going to get worse. You can still find the truth today if you really look for it, but it's getting harder and harder to find. I've got a bunch in in Jeremiah I wanted to cover. Uh, Let's look at Exodus 12. I'm not turning there, but you'll recall that the Passover was to be eaten with what? Bitter herbs. That which does not taste good. Bitter herbs. We don't like the taste of bitterness, do we? Why would God have us commemorate, or have them at that time commemorate it with bitter herbs? Well, they had been through a bitter experience in Egypt. We have been through a bitter experience in this world, and now we are coming out of a bitter experience in the church. That symbolism is still with us to this day. And we should rehearse every year at Passover the bitterness that Christ had to suffer and yet not become bitter. As he did not become bitter. We have to accept his humble sacrifice and put away our bitterness. Because it won't make any difference if we have the Passover right this next year for the first time in this end time age. If we do not examine ourselves very deeply and get rid of any bitterness, anger, clamor, and malice that is in our hearts, then we are eating and drinking damnation to ourselves, as Paul tells us. Getting the doctrine right (coughs) won't help unless we get the attitude right in worship in spirit and in truth. Where do you read that bitterness and anger is a fruit of the Spirit? You won't find it when he lists the fruits of the Spirit. Just not there. Where is that scripture I wanted to turn to? And in trying to hurry through this, I skipped it somewhere. But it tells us that bitterness and clamor and anger are sensual and devilish. That's in there. It's back in Paul's writings there. Did I miss it in Ephesians? It seemed like that's where it was. Where was that? I've got it written down here somewhere. But that was a real good one. Well, I'm looking for it and I don't see it. But look up sensual in your concordance or devilish and you will find, and it's talking about those very attitudes that we read about in Ephesians 5. Maybe I just overlooked it there. But it's somewhere here in Paul's writings in these books. Maybe it's in... Well, I don't see it. But it says that bitterness and anger are sensual and devilish in so many words. So if we have imbibed of the spirit of Satan in the angerness and bitterness of soul toward any in the church, any in the world for that matter, 
God says there is no room for it, that it is both sensual, that is carnal, human, and it is devilish, not of the Spirit of God. There is simply no room for it. Christ made it very clear that to those that we forgive, we will, if we forgive others, we will be forgiven. If we don't forgive others, we will not be forgiven. A couple people have found that. James 3, of course. I remember that now. I had it written down here somewhere. My eye wouldn't fall on it. I skipped over about 30 passages I wanted to cover. Uh, oh, this, this one's a beautiful one. It's talking about the tongue here. It says in verse 10, it's an, or verse 8, The tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. If there's any member of your body that's hard to control, it's the tongue, isn't it? That's, that's the tough one. Because it speaks what's in the heart and mind. Therefore, therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Now, how can you do that? We'll, we'll say, well, I worship God. It's men I have problems with. So we'll curse men who are made in the image and similitude of God. While we say, I love God, I'm carrying rancor and bitterness in my heart toward men. Out of the same mouth proceed blessings and cursings, my brethren, these things ought not so to be. James is saying, you can't say, on the one hand, I love God, I'm angry with men. There's no room for that. Does a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Sweet toward God, bitter toward men? How do you separate sweetness from bitterness when you turn on the tap and the water is bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries? Neither a vine figs. So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. And he's talking about the very attitude that a lot of people have had. Well, I love God. It's just what this church has done is so bad. So out of the same mouth proceeds sweetness and bitterness, and he says it can't be because the attitude inside is mixed. And therefore, the sweetness toward God does not count in God's eyes. If we're bitter toward men, he won't forgive us our sins. And the wages of sin is death. It's just that simple. I plead with you, I beg with you, do not try to be sweet and bitter at the same time. It won't work. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conduct his works with meekness of wisdom. Do what is right and show your own dedication to God and toward men with good works toward men. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. Don't deceive yourself that your relationship with God is okay if you have bitterness, anger, animosity, and malice or jealousy toward human beings. 
Didn't Christ make it very clear that what we do to the poor and the hungry and the naked and the stranger and so on, and the widow and the orphan for that matter, is what we do to him. And what we don't do for them is what we do to him. He takes it personal. Pure religion and undefiled is to visit the widow and the orphan and keep ourselves unspotted from this world. This world's attitude is full of jealousy, bitterness, anger, frustration, jealousy, and all those works of the flesh and of the devil. This world is full of that. We can't have that. This wisdom descends not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. You can't send a mixed message. You can't have fresh and bitter in the same tap. There's no room. It, It won't work. That which is bitter poisons everything. If you're bitter toward men, then God says he looks upon it as bitter toward himself. All he hears is the bitterness. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now he's starting to name some of the fruit of the Spirit of God, as opposed to the sensual and devilish things that we have allowed in our hearts and minds and have given opportunity and a space, however small or however large, for the devil. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Peace does not come naturally. Peace has to be made. Blessed are the peace makers. You think peace comes naturally? No way. You have to force your mind and your emotions to make peace with those that you are at odds with. You have to do it. God will bless peacemakers. He will not bless those who are sensual and devilish, that is, have sensual, devilish attitudes. And those have pervaded the church. They have pervaded the work, I believe, of the end-time Hezekiah. And we have carried on his bitterness since his demise. And there is no room for it. We simply must forgive and move on. We must purge our minds, hearts, emotions, souls, bodies, everything of all bitterness that was there. Now, it's taken a lot of time on that part of Hezekiah's psyche that involved bitterness about the pill that he had to swallow. But I did it, I think, advisedly because the church has been so full of these attitudes and there simply is no room for it. Now, God will not allow bitterness in his kingdom. We've already seen that. Without, with these things, we will not see the Lord. So there's no room for it. And I would advise us all not to listen to it. Now some may overcome it, 
this sermon may help to see what God says about these things. But you aid and abet it when you listen to it. So, if you don't give it an ear, it will have to die out, or it will have to remain inside the ones who promote it, and hopefully they will get over it. But if you give them audience, all it does is make it deeper-seated in them, and birds of a feather tend to flock together. There is no room in Christianity for bitterness, anger, and clamor. God says, be you angry and sin not, and let not the sun go down on your wrath. Can you repent? Can we repent that fast between now and sundown? Not very far off. At least get a start made. If there's something that deep-seated in us, as it has been in so many in the church of God today, we had better make haste toward repentance and conversion that we not be found in the gall of bitterness as Simon Magus or as Esau, because that's where it will lead and will take us out of the kingdom of God. Most of the church today is bitter to some degree or another. We must have a latter temple that will far outshine the former temple. And in so doing, we must put aside any of these attitudes that still remain in us so that our glory will outshine that which we had before, which wasn't much. So we have a challenge. We have the carrot before us. We can be those whom God turns and blesses and is pleased with. And next time, I hope we get into the blessing that will come. And I think we'll have time to do that. So it's not all doom and gloom. There are great promises of many, many carrots ahead of us. And we need to look there. And we need to get rid of this garbage we've had in our minds and move forward. So I'll stop there for today and we'll pick it up there next time.